Welcome to the world of culture pop with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. Culture, comedy, movies, TV, tech, authors, trends, pop, pop. This is the Culture Pop Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Culture Pop Podcast. I'm Steve Mason, along with Sue Kalinsky. Sue, you've already noticed that this is my show hoodie. I wear this hoodie when I'm doing any show, ESPN or Culture Pop. It's a Rams hoodie. What do you think? I like it. It's cool, um, but it's not cool. So I was just wondering why you were wearing a sweatshirt um, in this type of weather. Well, I like cranking up the AC. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Make it, make it chill. That was a famous thing. Did you ever... I was trying to think, did you ever do the Letterman show? No, but I know he notoriously, the studio was like an icebox. It was so friggin' cold in there. Um, I went as just, uh, I, I obviously did not do my stand-up act there. Um, <laughs> instead, I was just a member Was of that the Lost audience. Files or something? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I thought about doing stand and then I was like, no, no, I'm going to- Nah, I'd like to do it, Dave, but yeah, yeah, I wanted to do it. It's too cold. To, I can't do it. I wanted to do it with Johnny, but- uh, but it, it's it's chilly in here, so uh, yeah, no. So I always wear a hood. I always crank down the AC. It's it's very Letterman like. Generally speaking, I everything in my broadcast career has been modeled after David Letterman. I love everything about Letterman. Love the guy. When I saw the Vax live concert at SoFi Stadium, which was the very first event that ever happened there, it was like back two months ago, three months ago, even. Uh, David Letterman introduced the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. And uh, you haven't been inside SoFi Stadium yet, but it is like, like a sci-fi. It's like out of a, it's like out of Blade Runner, right? Mm-hmm. And so David Letterman walks out, and the very first thing he says, "This is my first time on a spaceship." Because <laughs> it it does resemble a spaceship. Oh, very uh, cool. Yeah. So you uh, you you told me a little bit. Uh, you, you're starting to strike the ball well. You're playing golf better. Well, I haven't played since. I guess I played with you last weekend, but I hit golf balls yesterday. And I never like saying that, you know, I found something new because it's such a jinx, but I was really striking the ball great. Nice. So, you know, that to me, it's like an orgasm. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's like... I, I, it stayed with me all day and it'll stay with me until the next time I hit. So I went out and played the par three myself with my uh, teacher, Derek Allen from Rancho Park. And I went out on Thursday and you know what? Every ball I struck well. I didn't, I didn't hit right. I didn't hit left. I was down the middle. I, you know, that whole, I, uh, uh, hold out in and uh, and hit the birdie when uh-huh. when we played. Uh-huh. Parred that had a totally legit par. Nice uh, chipped up and uh, had a nice putt to complete the par. So I'm actually feeling better about my game. Better about it. Mm-hmm. But, so did he make some tweaks with your swing so you're hitting him straighter? He's got me turning more. You know what I'm saying? You know, he's got me rotating more away from the hole before uh, before my uh, swing. Mm-hmm. So that's the one thing that he did. But no, I'm just I'm just making contact. I'm letting the club drop, and I'm making contact. So I'm super excited about that. I I, I can imagine that's great. Yeah. Did you hit yeah. any greens? I hit one green. Good for you. Yes, I invented a new thing called the green dance. Uh, when you hit the green, you do kind of a dance, and you go in a circle and. Uh, I've only had to do that once so far. It's embarrassing. Uh, well, but it's yeah, it's embarrassing it. even to me. Just yeah, to <laughs> even right to now. see me do it right now. Yeah, <laughs> the green dance. Uh, no, when I hit a green, I'm going to do that dance every time. So I did hit my first green, which was exciting, and then I three putted. So, <laughs> so you got to take the good with the bad. The good. Yeah. With well, the I, bad. I I actually um, practice putting, which I don't do often enough, and my rule is I take three balls and I have to get three in a row in and I can't leave the putting green until I do it. Nice. Nice. So, um, that that's kind of a thing that, um, I remember reading about Phil, Phil Mickelson when he practices and I don't know if he was doing this early on in his career, he would take, I think like maybe 50 balls, maybe a hundred wow. and he had to make, he had to make them all and he wouldn't leave until he finished making every single putt. Do you know that now Phil Mickelson has become a great hero because he won a major at the age of 50. It's an incredible thing. Did you know that his fellow golfers over the years, and this may have changed, 
but originally did not like him at all. Yeah, he was not well-liked. And what was the reason for him not being well-liked? Just kind of arrogant and kind Mm -hmm. of overly into himself. And Mm -hmm. so they used to call him Fig Jam. Fig Jam. Have you ever heard this before? No. They called him Fig Jam. Uh, Fuck, I'm great. Just ask me. Oh, my God. Yeah, that was that's what was his nickname on the tour among the other uh, golfers. And I think that's probably changed. He's aged. He's matured. I think everybody was happy for him when he when he won the major, which was really cool. Yes, yes. And I remember when his wife got sick, too, when she yes. got cancer. I think that humbled him uh, tremendously. So I'm sure that probably changed his cocky attitude. Maybe. Yeah. Well, we're going to do a little sports. I've, I've known this guy for a long time. I've never had a chance to talk to him, read him for a long time. Our guest today was the founder of the independent sports blog, Deadspin, back in 2005. After leaving Deadspin, he's written for the New York Times and GQ and the Washington Post and New York Magazine, writing about sports and culture. His books include Life as a Loser, Catch, God Save the Fan, and Are We Winning? His latest book is How Lucky. It's available now. It is a great, great novel. Will Leach is with us. Will, thank you so much for doing this. Oh, it is my pleasure for crying out loud. I'm honored to come on and, uh, and, and be uh, the least of your acclaimed guests. Uh, we, I have mm. been reading you for so long. It, uh, you know, I, I, we both read How Lucky, which is fantastic. And I, I want to talk about the novel because it is such a, such a great story uh, and so original. But I want to talk a little bit about the rest of your career before we, before we get to that. You know, Deadspin, I work at ESPN. Mm-hmm. So Deadspin was sometimes uh, would sometimes shake up ESPN a little bit. Uh, what was what was the origin of Deadspin? How did you start it? Yeah, uh, Deadspin started way back in 2005, actually. So I feel like uh, uh, that now uh, before it died, of course, in November 2019, never be resuscitated <laughs> again. Um, but yes, yeah, so basically, what happened with Deadspin was I had done a uh, uh, I was kind of a young, struggling, uh, struggling is being nice, to be honest, a uh, struggling writer in New York City. And I started a website with some friends of mine called The Black Table, including uh, AJ Delorio, who would later take over for me uh, at Deadspin. And uh, around that time, Gawker had come around, and, Gaw- and, I, and Gawker uh, read some of my work, asked me if I'd be interested in doing a gambling site, because they said that they had, they had a, a sponsor for a gambling site. And I said, well, actually, gambling on sports is bad. So I think we shouldn't do it. Uh, and boy, did I win that historical battle in the world of sports, by the way. Um, and so I said, I, I'm really bad at sport, uh, gambling, but I think you guys should do a sports site. And so I kind of pitched the whole idea to them and wrote the kind of a now infamous memo. And Nick Denton was in charge of Gawker. And he said, yeah, uh, you, yeah, you know what? Uh, this is a good idea. We're going to ask a bunch of other people if they want to do it. <laughs> and then fortunately for me, they all said no, and I was very cheap. So uh, I, I gave it a shot with my old, uh, with my old now late, sadly, uh, friend Rick Chandler. And uh, I really thought it would last like six months, and hopefully, and uh, maybe I get a, uh, a, a an evident, signing editor at New York Magazine would say, "Hey, he's a good writer. Maybe we'll give him an assignment." And uh, it became Deadspin. It became uh, much bigger, much more quickly than I was expecting. And it's funny you mentioned the. Uh, ESPN thing, you know, for me, I've, I had friends at ESPN then, I have friends at ESPN now, I get to me, ESPN was, there's an old joke in the movie, the, in the, the movie The Paper uh, by Ron Howard, where yes. uh, uh, Jason Alexander uh, uh, att- like holds Randy Quaid, the columnist, uh, hostage, and Jason Alexander says, why did you come after me? Why are you after my family? He's like, and, and Randy Quaid says, well, you worked for the city, it was your turn. Right, right. Because he works for a tabloid newspaper. And that was kind of the idea was uh, ESPN was such this massive presence that to me, it wasn't so much that anyone was going after ESPN. I certainly didn't think of it that way. And I hoped it was uh, any negative stories were always like good hearted and kind of light, light anyway. But more to the point, you know, people weren't really covering ESPN the way that they were covering Sports. It was always joked at the time that more people knew who Chris Berman was than like the shortstop for the Tampa Bay Rays. But <laughs> if the Tampa Bay Rays did something, it was a huge story. And no, and so for me, that that was kind of the way I thought about it. And uh, I still feel like compared to the, a lot of the other Gawker blogs at the time, I was incredibly nice. This was a great joke among all the other Gawker people. Like, why are they so mad at Will? He's the nice one. He's the one being so kind <laughs> to everybody. So uh, uh, I, I tried to have fun with it. And I think by the end, I know Deadspin kind of went. Some other directions after I left. But I think at the end there was a uh, 
uh, it was generally hopefully a sense of, of goodwill, uh, uh, a playful goodwill in the whole. Thing. Well, there was sort of an anti-establishment vibe to Deadspin. I, and I will be completely frank and say there were occasionally stories where I would have my boss say, hey, don't mention that thing from Deadspin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's okay. <laughs> that's that's, a, that's good. I, like honestly, like that, I mean, honestly, if, if back in the early days of Deadspin, if we could have clipped that and made it as our slogan, uh, that would have been like gold for us. Like the stories ESPN doesn't want you to hear about, and uh, so you know. And I think, and listen, you know, these were the early days. This was. This is 2005, right? Like I did the site from 2005 to 2008. So it was a different time in the internet for in, in ways both good and bad. And so uh, certainly I always kind of saw it as a playful site. It was meant to be fun. I, I, I read a lot of blogs at the time and I think a lot of blogs... I always joked that like I didn't want people to feel like they needed to take a shower at the end of the day. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like we would cover some stories that other people would not cover, but it was meant to be. I think someone once said it had a hair tousling playfulness, and uh, I think that was a goal. That, to, to be honest, I wanted it to be fun. And frankly, like you know, I was I was still I was you know I was both starting out in my career, but also old enough to know that like I don't want to be I don't want to be mean to people. I'm not out to like throw bombs at places. I was 30 years old. Yeah, you know, I just was trying to write a funny site and hopefully uh uh uh. Hopefully, hopefully, people were able to write. And listen, my parents were looking at the site. I wasn't going to do anything. Right, terrible. right. I'm a nice, nice Midwestern kid, and so I think people were a little surprised once they actually kind of met me as the site launched. I think they expected me to show up with like a black leather jacket and like a mohawk, <laughs> me like screw you on your media, you know. And I showed up with like a center part and like a dorky Midwesterner that I am. So, uh, uh, I, I hopefully that came across in the site. So you are a prolific writer. I mean, you write a lot. As a kid, were you a writer? Did you know that uh, that was your calling in life? Uh, I wanted to be, my hero growing up was Roger Ebert, uh, the old film critic uh, from Cisco and Ebert. He was, yeah. uh, I'm from a town called Mattoon, Illinois, uh, in central Illinois. Basically, Illinois is Nebraska with Chicago at the top. I'm from the Nebraska part. And he was also from the Nebraska part, the kind of farm country. In Ch- and he was in Urbana. And so I grew up kind of really wanting, I was like, wow, there's this guy that, that is from where I'm from who's on television every day talking about movies and he has all the, and gets to write whatever he wants. And so for me, you know, I knew I wanted to express myself. I was a young kid in kind of a farm town with a bunch of, wanted to do a bunch of stuff. But really, film and Roger Ebert was kind of my outlet to that. And so, you know, it's funny when I, when I worked, I went to college at the University of Illinois and I, I worked for the newspaper and I'm going to go cover sport. I'm going to go cover a sporting event, an Illinois football game. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to write, but I just knew I wanted to write. And I went up to the press box and, and for me, I expected all of these grizzled professionals, all these old professionals that be sure. sports forever to be elated. I was like, wow, they get to sit up here and watch sports for free. They give them <laughs> food up here. They must, they get to talk to the players. They're going to love their jobs. This is going to be great. And I went up there and I don't know, you've spent plenty of time in press boxes. Sure. I've spent plenty of time in press boxes. That was not the overarching uh, vibe <laughs> that I was kind of going in there. And so I just went up there and people were miserable and they were complaining and everything and they seem to hate their job so i thought you know what no matter what i do i can take sports writing right off the list now because sure, i like sports sure. i like sports i want to continue to like sports they seem to really kind of dislike sports and to be honest that was actually one of the founding principles of deadspin back in the day it was not just that you would cover stories that people didn't do but you wanted sports to be fun like i i really kind of made a deal with myself i'm like okay if i'm gonna write about sports i'm going to make sure that i enjoy sports at the end of it i don't want to get to the point where i don't enjoy sports anymore and so even now with all the writing for new york magazine and medium and and washington post and and times and everywhere else that i write you know i have if i if i sit down to write something and be like oh i have to write about the olympics oh no this simone (laughs) dial story i'm in the wrong profession right you know like for me this is this is something that I always wanted to do. You know, people are always asking, like, well, what's the goal? What's the plan? Like, I get to wake up in the morning and like type about stuff that I care about all day. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. That is the goal. That was always the goal. And so uh, uh suddenly to get that now, I feel pretty fortunate. You know, it's interesting, Roger Ebert. I did an interview. I was I used to be the co-host with uh, Tom Snyder of the Late Late Show. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did an interview with uh Siskel and Ebert together. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. And the subject of the movie Blue Velvet came up, which is one oh. of my all-time favorite movies. And Eber didn't like it. He Eber didn't like it back hated the day. that. Yeah, yeah. He hated yeah, I know, I know. it. And he's Gene, so wrong, by the way. He's so wrong. And Gene and uh, Roger literally got into a, a, a fight, a verbal <laughs> altercation over the movie Blue Velvet. Like all the, all the idea of them sort of debating movies, it was all real. They really did have sort of a a crusty relationship between Well, they were competitors. Like that, yeah. to me, that was kind of the fun of it, right? Like Ebert was from the Chicago Sometimes and Cisco from, was from the Chicago Tribune. This is back in the old Chicago newspaper days where the buildings were downtown. They'd all go to the Billy Goat and, and Royco and all of those great guys. And I really kind of fell in love with that kind of world of journalism. That was, I was from downstate Illinois, but that kind of world. And that was what I think made their interaction so, uh, so real was like, they liked each other. They had a professional sure. interaction, but like they were competitors editors and they if the other one had the wrong take like you know this is this is an argument why i think that uh pardon the interruption i think took off so much in sports they were people they weren't competitors so much but they were colleagues who had been having these conversations for years and years and there was a genuineness to it that you couldn't fake yeah um you're a big baseball fan right Yes, very much so. Yeah, and, and I baseball is my game. And Sue, when she gets on here, baseball is her game. I'm a Dodger fan. She's a Mets fan. You're a Cardinals fan. Um, I have We have this conversation pretty regularly on the show. Baseball, I love as is, right? I'm a huge baseball fan as is. But there's always this conversation of how to fix baseball. Like what changes would you make to give it more mass appeal so that it is more toe-to-toe competitive with football and with basketball? If you were the the Uber commissioner guy, what what change would you make in baseball, if any? Yeah, you know, this is this is the problem that baseball always runs into, right? Like it's what's the old joke about the old Groucho Marx jokes about Groucho Marx joke about uh, that, that oh that restaurant's so busy, no one uh, I don't no one goes there anymore. And uh and I and I feel like that's the thing with baseball. People are constantly complaining about baseball. And the only thing they complain about more about the way baseball is is when baseball tries to change something. <laughs> yes. <is> the fundamental <laughs> yeah. thing uh, of baseball fans. And so to me, I feel like a good example are were those all-star uniforms. I feel like they're a really good good example of this. I hated those all-star uniforms. I thought those looked terrible. Ditto. The general consensus was that they looked terrible. Uh, my kid loved them. <laughs> my kid oh, thought, oh, cool, they're different. I don't know if my kid's right. Trust me, he's nine and wrong about a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> he, doesn't, he doesn't know anything. He's nine. But I do feel like that, like at a certain level, that I don't like these uniforms becomes a yeah. Here's another thing that baseball's screwing up. Here's another thing that that, that oh, what are they doing with this? And why are they changing this? It was and and for me, it feels like not to say that baseball doesn't have problems. It definitely does. But I also feel. Like the NFL and the NBA are constantly changing things. They're constantly shifting things around. They shift things. Like my, my friend Chuck Klosterman has this great joke about how at the end of an NBA game, uh, when there's like 1.8 seconds on the clock and the and they're about to throw the ball in bounds and they call timeout and they yep. just let them move the ball to half court, changing the rules of space and time. Like that is like, that's yeah. not, you're not supposed yeah. to be able to just move forward with no time off the clock, but everyone just accepted, yeah, but it's cool. So let's do it. And I think that like the NFL and, and, and the NBA – I think people love those things, but I think they're also, they're accustomed to change. They remember being kind of the scrappy underdog and having to like try some things to, to, to get attention. Baseball, I think the problem with one of the problems, there are individual things in baseball that we can all argue whether or not they should be uh, changed or not. But I think one of the things with baseball is the reason people are so constantly complaining about baseball is because they love it. <laughs> like yes. People that, people that, that, like people that don't like baseball, they they're just like eh, it's boring, and then they move on to something else. Yeah, but yeah. like the people that like, complain about baseball, they do it out of love, and so for me, that has always been something that baseball should try to foster more and try to like remember. I think when baseball gets in trouble, it's when they try to go. I always joke it, joke it that it's uh, trying to get on the front page of Yahoo. Which is to say, if you go to the front page of Yahoo's website, it's always like whatever like story that's really interesting. It's in it's put together in the dumbest way possible yes, to make yes. the most, most wide number of people to be able to explain it. I understand why they do that. I get it. They have people in charge of the front page of Yahoo. They're not like they're they're, they're that, those pages are not. They're going to take the, the easiest, most wide ranging thing about the Simone Biles thing that a bunch of people that love gymnastics are going to be like, oh, that's that's totally wrong. That's I understand this better than you because they're trying. The Today Show would be another good example of this. Yes, it's always going to be a little bit dumbed down so people that don't care about it can come in. Baseball's problem. I would argue they get in the most trouble when they like. 
hmm, maybe the people that don't like baseball will like this, rather than being like, listen, this is a thing that we are all in together. We love this game. I would argue this is uh, a an optics problem for baseball's executive uh, culture right now. Yeah. There is a sense, fairly or not, that the people in charge of baseball don't love baseball in that passionate way hmm. that people love baseball. And I think because of that, when there's a change made, like the runner on second and extra innings or the doubleheader rule or whatever, whatever people's thoughts about those things, they always, the, the assumption is never, oh, well, you know what? They love baseball. They're trying something. They're trying to figure something out. It's a, oh, there they go again, trying to figure, uh, to focus group or market, market something out. Yeah. And but you know, in, fa- in fairness, I think, well, I mean, so you and I are going to watch no matter what, right? Yeah, I'm not so going we're to baseball play. fans. Yeah. I'm okay with the evolution of the game. Like I'm okay with the runner on second in the tenth inning to try to break the time. I'm, o- yeah. I'm okay with with uh, uh, you know these these changes that have taken place because I'm going to be there no matter what, and I want more people at the party, so I'm willing to accept that change. I think there are a lot of baseball fans who are like, "No, this is baseball. This is how we play it." We don't want to change it. Uh, it stood for 120 years or 150 years or whatever that is. Um, you know, it's so for me as a hardcore fan, I'm like, I'm okay with tinkering with the game to see if I can get younger people to watch it, right? Yeah, I, I, I am. I am. I liked. I this. I got. I got. I made the mistake of saying on Twitter that I actually maybe didn't hate the runner on second in extra innings rule. If you get a chance to go on Twitter and say that, don't. I don't recommend. <laughs> uh, but I, for me, like the to me, that's actually the sort of thing that whatever you like that rule or whether you don't like the rule, that rule is coming from a good place, which is hey, you know what? A lot of people don't want to don't want to say hey, I want to go to a baseball game. I'm signing four and a half hours of my life away. Right. Like a lot right. of people, like if you're at a game, and more to the point, even if you don't know how long it's going to go, you want to be able to, like in the eighth inning, if the game is tied, be like, you know what? I'm here. I know I have to go to work tomorrow, but we get into the tenth inning, and I'll be able to stay until it's over. Like, I, yeah. there's a reasonable time that I'm going to be able to watch the end of this game. That's my argument for it. Maybe you disagree. Lots of people disagree. That's fine. But the idea that, like, that's not made with the idea of, you know what? We're actually just trying to make the casual fans give them something like you're at the game we do not want this to be a negative experience for you right i get it the hard now that's that's a particularly tough issue because hardcore fans also i would watch a 22 inning game because there's nothing better i'm doing <laughs> yeah, sure. my day than watching a baseball game so that's why it's a challenge between them and that's why it's always hard but i do think i would argue that one of the problems now is i i think Either whether it's messaging, what, or, or or it's just the way that we are now, there is a sense, again, uh, fairly or unfairly, that if baseball does something, like they're doomed either way. Yeah. Like, yeah. like if they, if they, if they're, tr- they people don't trust. I always remember back when when Peter, you, we're, we're we're old enough. I was. Oh yeah, Peter, you were sure. When Peter Yarth was was the was the commissioner, and it's funny because the thing that and Bart Giamatti, I think, even a better example of this. They were people that like no one doubted that they loved baseball. Giamatti in particular, right. there was no doubt that he loved baseball, and so if he did something you disagreed with. I don't remember Bart Giamatti doing anything that anyone ever disagreed with or still debate today. Uh, but certainly, obviously, the Pete Rose situation. But I do think that at a certain level... Although, wasn't it Bart Giamatti that banned Pete Rose? Yes, that's, that's, that's my joke. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, uh, certainly, whenever Bart Giamatti would make a decision or there would be the idea, there was a clear sense among the media, among fans, you know what, this guy loves baseball. They might have thought he was a fancy Yale pocket square sort of guy but like he loved baseball and i think that's one of the problems not just with changes but even with the people running the teams and like the efficiency and 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 the things people get frustrated by the strikeouts the fourth three true outcomes lack of action in the game i think a lot of that is based in this idea that there's like accountants are running our game and i think that i think that leads to some frustration in that regard and i i feel like that's something that needs to be addressed that's the larger problem yes. as opposed to the smaller problem of these individual changes so i've uh, i've had a chance to broadcast uh, at seven olympics it's my favorite gig that i i ever get is to be in i'm not there this year because they dialed back the broadcasting and all that stuff and my friends say well it's like you go to the church of the olympics i have such reverence for the Olympics. And I always sum that up by 
this sort of example is that we have the parade of nations. Every country walks in separately. And then for the closing ceremonies, all the athletes just pour in together without any sort of separation between nations. And to me, that's what the Olympics are all about. For you, what makes the Olympics special? Yeah. No, I like uh, it. It's funny because I'm this is this Olympics. I covered the Sochi Olympics. I went to the to the 2014 Sochi Olympics, which I feel like people have forgotten now. But beforehand, everyone was terrified we were all going to get blown up. <laughs> like, yeah, that's that was, right. Like the big thing, nobody. Remember, I remember that like someone like literally from the Obama administration went on the on like Meet the Press on Sunday saying, "Hey, I wouldn't send my family there." My pregnant <laughs> wife loved that, by the way. Um, so fortunately, I made it back in here. And the the thing that I loved about that that to me it's still it's kind of similar to what you're talking about the, with, with everyone kind of coming together, you know. I'm again. I'm a corn kid from Midwestern farm country, nowhere Illinois. The the thing that's wonderful about the Olympics is you is whether you're there or 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 uh, I think in television when you're watching on television it becomes more of I wouldn't say the word nationalist has a different vibe now. But I think it's it, there's a certain there's a certain like I'm this is a time where I can cheer for my country unabated and, yeah. and and feel good about this. I feel like that's a television thing the way it's kind of told. But when you're there and as someone that's been there so long, you know, you're like. Oh wow! I am. This is a great reminder that I'm a citizen of the world. Yes. <laughs> like I'm a citizen of the world, and 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 everyone has all converged on this place. And you know, I was in Sochi, which was not the most highly attended uh, Olympics. It was out. It was so far away. But the idea that like. Like we we found a bar and I drank with the Australian ski team and uh, and like we all and my group of people became friends with some Norwegians and they didn't understand me and I didn't understand them but we understood cheers and uh, and I think that there's something about the Olympic thing where it's I think the World Cup is great about this too where it becomes this thing where all of these. All of these people who otherwise have no connection and, in fact, may even be adversaries in a lot of ways can all come together to an ideal. I don't know if it's always that way in practice, but I think like a lot of ideals, there is value in the ideal, yeah. even if it is not necessarily a take. Sue, are you – Sue's uh, back. On the <laughs> so Sue. I'm back. What did I miss? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, did, I didn't stop to take a breath, Sue. I just like <laughs> plowed right through every answer. It's been a hell of a conversation. Okay. Oh, I was so bummed out. That's right. We're recording it. We're recording yeah. it. You can tell the listener. It's all good. So, Sue, we were just talking about the Olympics, and we we're going to talk about the Simone Biles thing because okay. uh, Will has written about it. Um, mm -hmm. What was your take on the Simone Biles story? My take was that, you know, you, you got to give this woman a break. I mean, you know, she was concerned about her her safety and uh and like, you know, we had talked about it recently, you know, it's uh, she's the face of the Olympics. There's so much pressure on her. And but the, the main thing was that this, you know, the twisty thing. I mean, you know, she may try to, you know, attempt something and not have her faculties and not know where her body is and and hurt herself. So, you know, I, I just think people who were were giving her shit about it are, you know, completely ridiculous. Well, you've written a lot about this. Yeah. You know, it. Listen, I do think that this is the backlash. And to be fair, I think a lot of the backlash was imagined before it happened. <laughs> like, I do think, I remember when, when I was watching, we saw that Biles was, uh, and, and, and I think on the NBC broadcast, I think one of the broadcasters said, it's not a physical issue, it's a mental issue. And I think we all, when that happened, particularly so soon after the Osaka uh, incident with, with Wimbledon, we all kind of went, oh, here we go. Here we go. We're going to have to all have all these fights again. And I would argue that in general i would say in a macro sense people have i think been pretty supportive i would argue uh similarly to osaka right i think that it's become a certain thing where where you can show that like hey i agree with this uh, I, I i'm empathetic to this person and i and we should be there and i think that's great i'm glad we did that and i think biles in particular like for crying out loud what she has gone through remember she talked about heading into the olympics that one of the main things she wanted to be on the olympic team that you're this for was to actually show that to, as a survivor of abuse and mm -hmm. also as someone who had actively wanted to show USA Gymnastics uh, how involved they were in this and how much they covered up for Larry Nasser for all those years. She wanted to represent that as well, both the face of USA Gymnastics and the face of the fight against USA Gymnastics. That's a lot. That's a lot to put on a person. So I think Biles in particular, I feel like I, I, going after her is, uh, is it's just that I, I feel like it says more about the person than it does uh, her. I do think we are at the at a pivot point, however, uh, in a good way. I would argue of the way we discuss 
mental health with athletes and specifically the idea of discussing it as an injury and the idea of like accepting yes. that it is an injury that is different that, that is not different than a, like it's obviously physically different than a hamstring but like people can perform at their best or they cannot perform at their best and i think there's a, uh, there, there was a great paper written in the early 90s uh, called about the sports ethic and the sports ethic is always it's not just team above all else team above individual but it's also pain uh, is uh, pain is to be resisted. Pain is to be fought. Fa- pain is to be overcome as a general idea. Quite a lot. I I had my I remember playing little league and then me them telling me to rub dirt on it. Whatever things that I sure that I never little spit tried. little dirt get back out there. Yeah, which right. I gotta tell you is a terrible thing to do to an open wound. <laughs> just to be as clear as possible. Um, but uh, I you know that's that's part of it. Like that's always been part of our sports culture, and I think there's I think there's a transition happening in that, and it's not just from a younger generation. I think they're the ones kind of led the way in this, but I think there's a there's a look now to say, you know what, if someone can't perform mentally, that's an injury. That's not a weakness. That's something right. that's happened to them. And and the idea that, that Simone Biles had somehow got to the to the uh, got hit some tur- turbulence and quit and bailed. You do not get to the Olympics in the first place, let alone all the gold medals she's already won without having overcome uh, that in the first place. It, but it does feel like a change in the way we're talking about this uh, that I think like a lot of change we've seen in the country over the last few years is hard for some people to, to maybe uh, reckon with. And I think a lot of times, too, when it comes to physical, a, a physical uh, situation and a mental situation, the physical you can see. People can see it. People can see that somebody can't, you know, is limping or somebody has um, a knee injury or, or a shoulder injury. But when it comes to mental health, it is an internal thing. And when you look at somebody, you don't readily see it. And I think a lot of people, like you said, I, I think a lot of people don't recognize it and they don't accept it. And this feels like something, like a lot of things, in 20 years, you know, during this particularly tumultuous period in American history, yeah. I found myself oftentimes, I have kids that are nine years old and seven years old. Someday they're going to look back. Daddy has a job where he talks and writes for a living. They can find <laughs> all of the things he said during this time. So I find myself like very acutely aware of trying to to be on the right side of history on this stuff. And this feels like in 20 years when people look back at this, the people that were like that feel like mental health is not some is not an injury it's just something that a tough person overcomes that that's just not going to age well i know it was different 20 years it was though for what it's worth as many people have pointed out Michael Jordan literally retired from basketball for his mental well-being. So like I feel like that night it was framed differently then, but I think that 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 certainly was the way to discuss it. And I think too that this will wind up being again because of the evolution we I've talked openly about the fact that I'm bipolar 1 and you know I've the I've I've take mental health days when I when I need to, right? Um, I, I think that in the end, this is going to be a positive part of her legacy and not a negative part of her legacy. Because as a gymnast, she has not changed. I was in Rio four years ago, and I worked with uh, Mary Lou Retton and Peter Vidmar as analysts. And they were describing to me that, that Simone Biles is doing things that are unimaginable, that, that no, they're inventing things for Simone Biles. She's <laughs> so much better than anybody ever thought anybody could be at this sport. And so I, I think that the exclamation, well, we'll see if it, it's the exclamation point, but I think this is going to be a positive part of her legacy. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and to be fair, she has benefited by the fact that like she is, I mean, I, I, she's the most amazing. She's one of the most amazing athletes any of us have ever seen. Like the, like the idea, the thing that I wrote about this in the piece, it was very strange to see. Like, there's that famous video from, I think, from qualifying where it was slowed down. And you could just see what all of her muscles were doing as she was flying through the air. And the thing that I think people forget is to get to that point where you're able to do these amazing things. We're seeing that now. But imagine how many times she has fallen. Imagine how many practices that has not worked. How many times? How how many times she screwed up and had to overcome and say, "Can I do this? Can I? Uh, am I physically capable of doing it?" Literally, no one's ever done this before. Is it impossible for me, for a human, to do this and for to, her to overcome that? So I agree. I feel like this is something that uh, uh, is going to be thought of uh, uh, in a similar way. It reminds me a little bit of, frankly, when Serena Williams and Venus Williams came into tennis a mm-hmm. little bit and like they had a different way of like, n- never minding uh, race, but like they had a different way of 
composing themselves and contorting, contorting themselves in a way that bothered people. And now they've taken it like now, like Wimbledon's like, wait, Serena isn't here. Well, what are we going to do this year? <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so like, so the idea that, that that feels like the time of, of the arc of history ultimately coming to a good place. Well, wasn't there a thing too, with um, the way she was being um, judged points wise, they said that they didn't want to give her higher points because she's so much better than everybody else. And that put a lot of pressure on the other athletes on, in other countries <laughs> yeah. to try to mimic what she was doing. And they were afraid that they were going to extend themselves to the point where they were going to hurt themselves. Yes. And it's like, is this <laughs> kind of like everybody gets a medal here? I mean, this is, yeah. it, was, it was really such an odd thing that they actually admitted that. Yeah, that, boy, that, that doesn't sound like someone mentally tough. <laughs> so yeah it is it is bizarre it's bizarre but i again it feels like frankly a lot of things have felt over the last few years that uh listen if if, if you were to hear i feel like i did this with my piece i wrote about simone biles too i immediately started with this idea like if you aren't supporting simone of supporting own biles here's why you're wrong but i feel like i'm a i i i would be careful of not making it a straw man argument like there are people that are doing but these i would argue are the general bad faith people that are doing a lot of bad faith things and are just kind of maybe doing this more for their own social clout than any kind of like coherent worldview and so i think that like well, as always, the loudest people get make you feel like this is a bigger thing. I really think the vast, vast, vast majority of people are very supportive of her and have a lot and have not only admiration but uh, are empathetic for what she's gone through and, and frankly find her her, her pretty brave. So uh, let's talk about how lucky your novel, uh, which Sue and I both loved, both love. It's such it's such a good book. Um, and your lead character and your narrator is a kid named Daniel who's suffering from spinal muscular atrophy, SMA. They say, write what you know. I assume you know somebody with SMA? Uh, yes, my oldest son's best friend uh, has it. In fact, there's a scene in the book where uh, Daniel, the uh, the narrator, and Travis, his best friend, um, they are, when they're both kids, they're crawling around, and like Daniel's unable to put weight, weight on his legs, and Travis is able to move around. That's exactly what happened with my, it's my, what my wife's oldest friend, uh, her son, is born around the same time as my son, and so we spend a lot of time, they're like, they're, they become closest friends, and so this was something that has affected, obviously touched our lives pretty closely, and we spend a lot of time, his name is Miller, lives in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, go Citadel. And um, go, go, go. Uh, Bill Murray owns the uh, the minor league team there. So, uh, so if you have a chance to see the River Dogs, by all means, get to get to go do so. Um, but uh, you know, we spent a lot of time with Miller, and you know, to see this not only the strength of Miller, but the strength of the families. Uh, and you know, and one of the. But one of the things I would talk to Miller, they, they would have this race every year called the Go Miller Go Run, and we would always go. And it was always to like raise awareness and raise funding for, for SMA research, uh, which has made uh, which has gone incredibly well. Like the there's there's a drug called Spinraza that's been very huge for people with SMA. But I would it was it's been like SMA is a physical progressive disease, but it is not. It does not erode you mentally in any way, hmm. shape, or form. And it was Certainly, uh, uh, the level of frustration that I heard from the number of people that I talked to uh, who had SMA, they're like, yeah, I know that everyone's being good-hearted, everyone's got a good intention, they're still talking to me like an idiot. <laughs> right, <laughs> and, right. Uh, and, and I think that that really kind of stuck in my head. And so I started, like, this is the journalist part, I started doing a lot of, a bunch of research. I've been wanting to work on, on, I've written four books before, but I hadn't written a novel since before Deadspin, if you can believe that. So mm. I was kind of ready to, uh, to, to try that. And I got kind of, obsessed with that idea so i kind of researched sma a lot but eventually daniel kind of emerged like daniel has sma but he is quite defiantly not defined by his sma and i think that and i think uh, uh daniel once i figured out the character of daniel and kind of who he was and kind of the uh, kind of the positivity of daniel and the optimism and the hopefulness of daniel uh after that uh, SMA was a part of his life, but it, it did not drive his life. And then he kind of, uh, I used to always make fun of authors when they would, they say things like, Oh, well, the character told the story. I was just along for the ride. And I was like, Well, you <laughs> learned this in like your creative writing class. This is what they tell you to say. And, uh, now I actually get it. I actually get it now. Maybe I've become part of that, that, that annoying literary group. I, I it's true. Like once I figured out Daniel, I just kind of followed him where he took me. 
you know, the book really resonated with me because uh, one of my brothers uh, worked in special ed and he was an attendant many, many years ago uh, to somebody, this guy, Mike, who ended up being uh, a good friend of his. He went to his house and did basically what Marjani did. Yeah. And the first time I met him, I guess I was in my early 20s and I had never had any contact with anybody who had a condition like that. He had he had muscular dystrophy mm -hmm. and he was in a wheelchair. He was a quadriplegic and he, like Daniel was so similar in that he he never wanted anybody to feel sorry for him and he would disarm you whenever you met him and we were going into a restaurant and he's sitting in his wheelchair and there was a group of us and he said I'm going to put a paper bag over my head and when we go into the restaurant I want you to ask the maitre d for a table for five and a bag <laughs> okay, that's a good book. And this guy I'm gonna do is that. one of the funniest people I had ever met in my life. Brilliant, irreverent. Um, so reading this book really brought back some really lovely memories. He he died at the age of 49, but he ended up marrying one of his attendants and having two children. Yeah. So he he had this unbelievably rich life and um and I, and and anytime I was with him, I, I, it's like I never even thought about what his condition was. He was just Mike. Yeah, and I think that was key. I think when having Daniel, not just have, having Daniel, but having Travis, his best friend, who has known him since he was a year old and is the last person in the world, as anyone is to anyone they've been friends with since they were a small child, is ever going to be like, like, like treat them differently or be like weird like like he's like he's just his friend man and and for me you know that there i will confess a little wishfulness on that because you know william william my son william and uh and his friend miller like we we actually just saw them uh we, we saw them over the fourth of july and uh, i can assure you william is not does not lay off when they're playing mad <laughs> like they, they are really all over each other. And to me, that's, that's what friendship is, right? You know, I think that the book is really, there, there's a mystery aspect to it and there's a thriller aspect to it. And hopefully that's effective and that works for people. But, but certainly, uh, the, the, the thrust of the book is really not about SMA or really not about the mystery. It's about like goodness. And like, this is a difficult time. I, I, I think I speak for a lot of people. It's been a, it's been a long few years, yeah. uh, in, in a lot of ways. And I think that like, I do think one of the things that Daniel talks about kind of relentlessly in the book is because he, he works in, so, he works on social media. He works, he answers social media for an airline, which is yes. a great way to get yelled at all day. <laughs> and, uh, and one of the things he talks about is like, I've noticed that nobody, like when someone opens the door for you, no one tweets, Oh, look at the nice thing that someone did today. You'll tweet about someone not wearing the mask in there or whatever things you want to complain about in there. And so I think that it is built for negativity, but in the real world, in the way that Daniel sees it, and I will confess somewhat, somewhat the way I see it is better than that. And it's nicer than that. And people are, quietly and for no benefit to themselves kind to each other all the time and i think that it gets lost in kind of our social media world and our you know kind of polarized world but i do think that's you know i think that's that's, a, that's to me is the overarching lesson kind of that daniel has to tell people is that i know it seems like people aren't good but i'm telling you they are if yeah, we can just yeah. get past mm -hmm. the other stuff you know the thing i like about the book is that it's very much about people who are not, who are not seen, uh, you know, whether it's uh, Daniel who's uh, in a wheelchair or it's Marjani who is a caretaker or it is the Chinese exchange student, you know, people who are oftentimes overlooked or ignored. They're kind of unseen people. Do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and I think part of it's communication. Too, is that not only see, but they, 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 they really, it's hard to be heard. Like one of the things that Daniel keeps getting really frustrated by, he witnesses a crime. He's being like, Hey, I witnessed a crime. Please listen to me. And, and people just look right past it. People look right past him or they, or they don't want to put in the time uh, to listen. And I think that's, that's a part of it too. And I, you know, I wanted to, uh, you know, and listen, I recognize I'm an able-bodied person and I am writing about some from the perspective of someone that has a disability that I do not have. And so I think that is inherently, uh, I, I, uh, I can, if someone is suspicious of that, I do not blame them. <laughs> and, and inherently, I cannot know better. I can't, by, by definition, know better than, than the, uh, than people who have it, but I can do my best to tell the story of Daniel and speak to enough people who have been in Daniel's position to get the details right. And I, hopefully I have, and I think that to me, Daniel is someone that he's not heard and he's not seen, but he's not managing for it. 
gets it. Yeah, <laughs> and, I yeah. think, and I think that like, I think that that is something that I, I feel like more people feel that's something that's not listened to either. Right. We usually just listen to people who are angry or and which and not to say that their anger is not justified, but like, that's usually who you hear in a lot of ways. And so I kind of like think one of the things I love about Daniel is he gets it. He doesn't disagree with people that are upset. It's just that like, we're all doing our best. Life's real hard. We're all doing, and and that attitude, I, I will say, I, I even find myself kind of personally sustaining sometimes. Right, and I don't, I don't know if if this purpose purposefully was done, but um, it felt like an homage to um, Rear Window, Alfred <laughs> there, Hitchcock movie. It's, it's funny, Rear Window is such a, it's I because I, I, I've obviously seen Rear Window and I love Rear Window, and to me, Rear Window is almost at this point like Groundhog Day, which is to say, it is a genre of its own. Like, mm-hmm. like I love like the Groundhog Day. There's been Edge of Tomorrow, and there's been Palm Springs, and there's been uh, <laughs> and all these different movies that basically are just Groundhog Day to the point that like. I feel like Groundhog Day is just a genre now. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. Like it's its own mm-hmm. genre. And I kind of feel like Rear Window is like that a little bit too. Like someone witnesses a crime and doesn't know how, what they, and doesn't know, isn't sure if they've witnessed the crime or what they've done. I feel like that, that movie is brilliant and it's really about, and I think hopefully, the movie's a lot better than the book, but hopefully like the movie, uh, Rear Window is a, a Rear Window and How Lucky are about more than the crime. And they are about more than the than solving. It. Hopefully, that is sustaining and that it propels people to read the book. But it's 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 a vessel to try to do something else and something. So you write a lot about uh, pop culture, and I'm a huge movie fan. I actually owned a chain of movie theaters, sold them uh, in 2016, which I'm very very grateful for. But I, I'm going back to my local movie theater, seeing a few movies a week. Uh, What's the exhibition business in your mind look like going forward post pandemic? What's what what's it, what's going to the movies going to look like? You know, I think I I I found it telling that um, like so we've had some look at the Quiet Place Part Two. Yeah, uh, did was well. A huge hit. Uh, F nine was a huge hit. Was it quite to pre pandemic levels? It was not. But like it also. Like look, like look at what's happening with Scarlett Johansson and Black Widow right now. Like clearly there was a huge drop off, and correctly, what, I, correctly or not, she and a lot of other people believe it is because there was the option of of, of watching it at home. Listen, movie theaters are—it's just a different experience. It's yeah. just a different experience, and I find it telling that when when there was something that someone wanted to see, they went to go see it. <laughs> and right. like, I know. And listen, we know the pandemic is not over. We know that it is. But like, certainly people were eager and desperate to get out and have that opportunity again. And I do I think it will dif- look different? I think it would have to look different in a streaming world. But I would argue part of this problem, too, is there is a prestige that even your streamers still want. <laughs> like Netflix wants like they, they, they for crying out loud, they, they gave Scorsese $40 billion to make a three hour movie about, uh, that, about longing, about loss and, 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 and turning old and, and, and regret. And that is like, they, I'm sure they lost money off that movie, yes. but that wasn't the goal. Like the goal was, you know what? We understand that there is a prestige and there is a specialness to the movies that we as streamers, we know we could just be like, yeah, but look, here's here's another kissing booth, kissing booth part eight or whatever this thing is. Yes. And they're still doing that. But like to me, that is a sign that there is clear value in movies. I think the industry is in a weird uh, in a weird moment right now. I feel like those Oscars we saw this year were a good example example of it's a transitional moment. But the idea that uh, that uh, people were uh, suddenly were done with movies or did not want to go to the theaters anymore, I, I think it's uh, I think it's pretty belied by the facts. What what's your take on what happened with Scarlett Johansson and Disney? I think I I, just, I don't I can't speak to the legalese of the issue, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, I can certainly understand her frustration. Yeah, <laughs> I can certainly understand uh, not just that uh, that that was not what she signed up for, but also you know this was like how long did it take them to make this movie <laughs> like, yeah. like, like that, to right. make a movie with a female lead uh it took, it took them forever and like to the point where she was on saturday night live making fun of it with remember the old black widow sketch where it was a romantic comedy <laughs> yes and, right. uh, and so and it was really funny but it also spoke to i think the subtitle subtitle to that fake movie was see 
Marvels make can make movies for the ladies too. And, and, I, and I think that that's right, right? And I think that so I can certainly see uh, why she would be frustrated that independent of what she claims it was in her contract uh, about this. So certainly, uh, I think you're seeing this a lot already, right? You've seen this, you already see, see so this weird too with, with the Pixar movie. Like some movies get the special uh, Cruella thing on Disney Plus and then the Pixar movie just went straight to streaming and yes. like what that says about Pixar and what that says about this. And, and you know, it, it feels like the easy thing is just like, hey, let's just release them in theaters. There, hey, yeah, let's yeah, just do right, that. Right. And uh, I will say I had a truly great movie experience this week, I saw The Green Knight, which is David Lowry's new movie, yeah. which is not only a terrific movie, but is overwhelming on the big screen. It would have been entirely different if I'd have been watching it. I still would have liked it. It would have been good. Sure. It was just an entirely different experience. And so uh, we've all kind of dealt, as I, I, now that I'm fully vaccinated, I know there's variants out there. We all have to be careful. I'm wearing, uh, we're all trying to do the right thing. But getting to go back to the movies, like my mood <laughs> has yes. improved dramatically because it just you forget, even when you watch, there, I saw some really good movies over streaming during the pandemic and I've watched sure. many good movies in the past. But it's just not the same. I just saw that uh, Tuesday night. I saw that uh, Val Kilmer documentary. Oh, yeah, it's which, good. Yeah, it's Which good. is so good. Yeah. So good. Such yeah. an interesting guy. Yeah, but it's nice to be back in a, actually in a movie theater and seeing it, I think, the way movies are meant to be seen. So we, uh, this is, you're the first guy we're doing this with. We, we're planning to start finishing the show with three questions. Did you get teed up for this? I did not, but I am prepared. I'm okay. prepared. Just okay. Don't, just don't start them with, isn't it true, sir? And then I can <laughs> yeah, pop up yeah. like my high school girlfriend or something. I'm like, I'm I know. You're not, you're not under oath. Okay, yeah. Okay. No, whatever, whatever goes. So uh, first question is, what is your favorite childhood memory? I feel like um, James Lipton asking these. That's okay. That's good. <laughs> uh, it, it, it inevitably would have to be baseball related. Uh, my, my father was desperate. Uh, was a huge baseball fan, still is, and was desperate to get me into the Cardinals, our team. We lived about two hours away from St. Louis, and I, I just wasn't. I was, I was reading like Mom, the Wolfman, and me on on the playground at recess, <laughs> and like he's like, oh, he's gonna get beaten, and uh, so he was really trying to get me in, into baseball, and so he literally put me on the back of his Triumph motorcycle, uh, drove the two hours. This is to talk about how he raised kids differently now. <laughs> I not only know a helmet, I was holding onto his jacket on the back of uh, the interstate down I. For two hours, if I let go, that's we're not having this conversation. And uh, but he but he took me and I got I saw Ozzy Smith ran on the field and did a flip, and William McGee mm. hit, a, hit a triple into the gap, and and uh, and Whitey Herzog got in an argument with the umpire. And I thought, oh, this is amazing, <laughs> and my <laughs> life has not been the same since. All right, number two, what is your all-time favorite movie? Impossible Ooh. question. It's it is definitely impossible. impossible. Definitely an impossible question. Um, I would say the, there's there's one movie I try to watch every uh, uh, every year. Uh, I wouldn't say I'm not going to say it's my favorite because when you write about movies, you inevitably like, oh, you think that's the best movie of all time. So I will talk about the movie that makes me feel good. Sure, the movie that I always try to make sure to watch at least once a year, which is Stop Making Sense, the the mm. Talking Heads documentary mm. by Jonathan Demme. To me. Uh, is everything that's great about movies and that it's, it, it's active and it's real and it's happening in real time. But it's also like this incredible chronicle of what human beings are capable of doing. And the songs are great. And the songs yeah, are great. Yeah, so, the music uh, for, is great, for, sure. For me, uh, uh, that's, I would say Stop Making Sense is, 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 is pretty high. All right, and the third one, what is your favorite moment from all of your career successes? Oh geez, um, I I I hasn't happened yet. I don't think I, I, every day I get to wake up. You know, I, I, this is gonna sound like a silly answer, but it is kind of true. I, you know, for a long time before Deadspin, even for a while after Deadspin, I wrote a lot and nobody read it and nobody paid me to do it and nobody cared. Uh, and so for me, some people, uh, I know some people have taken that to be like, so you're not going to shoot me down. I've, I've climbed my way up the ladder and I'm going to, but for me, I, I, it's why I never get offended by like a bad review or someone calling me a jerk on Twitter. Like, right. You noticed, Oh my gosh, they noticed the thing that I made. <laughs> That's amazing. And so for me, like, the 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 idea that when I wake up in the morning and I get my kids to school and they start very early in the south we're starting like next week um, uh -huh. uh, I get my kids to school and like there are people uh, editors readers regular people following myself who are like oh so we can't wait to 
to read what Will did today. I don't know how many they are. I don't look at traffic numbers. It's an old deadspin rule. <laughs> uh, but like, there's people I, I get paid to, I get to, like, I get to make stuff and every, yeah. you know, and to me, uh, the, the, to bring us full circle, uh, Roger Ebert has this wonderful, one of my favorite quotes of all time. Someone asked him, um, what his favorite words, uh, favorite three words in the English language were. And he said, bye, Roger Ebert. <laughs> and, and I understand. I get it like that. Like, not that I love the words below that, but the idea of, I, I became addicted to bylines. I am addicted to like, you know, I, you've noticed even this conversation, I, uh, I talk fast and I, and I start this direction and I go this direction and I go here and I go here. You don't see that when I'm writing. I just, I, you just see me go forward. And yes. I someone that's trying to, trying to figure out this crazy world and make some sense of it uh writing lets me calm down a little bit and make stuff and uh, yeah. make sense so i'm pretty lucky to get to do that regularly. well listen it is awesome having you on the show i've always been a big fan going back to the deadspin days uh and your latest novel is just great it's called how lucky everybody should go check it out uh well thank you so much for doing this man we really appreciate it Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And soon, I'm glad, I'm glad you got back. I was, I, I, yeah, I was yeah, yeah. And year. and and we we didn't get to talk about the Mets uh, Cardinals rivalry during the years when when you were a much younger, uh, the Neil Allen trade, young lad, but the Neil but, Allen but, trade. But 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 your your uh, your Cardinals called my Mets pond scum. I remember. I remember. I was not allowed to say that word uh, when I was that age. So so I know that's what they say now. But I I never said it because the word scum. I, my dad was not letting me say the word scum. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. When I was seven years old. So, but of course, thank you so much for having me. I, I, I had a blast. And, uh, awesome. Give you great luck with everything. Thanks, Will. Thank you. Damn, I'm sorry you missed part of Will Leach. Sue? I know. And I was so excited for the interview, but I'm glad that I, I was able to uh, to get in for, from, for a lot of it. So, How much reading do you do? We were talking about the book, How Lucky. How much reading do you do? I've been reading so much more now that we're doing the podcast together. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, I, I try to read... I don't know, a couple of books a month, you know, maybe, you know? Yeah, I've read, I keep a list. I've read 12 books this year so far. Okay. well, Which is like two, that's like a one and a half books a month. Yeah, I've probably read, I don't know, maybe six. A Perfect Vacation, I soak and I read. Soak and read, soak and read. That is a Mm -hmm. perfect vacation to me. Yeah, yeah. Well, when when we go in the trailer, uh, the Winnebago. Yeah, the Winnebago. um, I always bring a book. Did you see now in North Carolina, they've got a Winnebago or a Winnebago camp, a uh, campsite where it is for swingers? We talked about it. Did we? I, I Did brought you it up on the, on the news. Oh, sorry about that. I yeah, forgot. yeah, yeah, yeah. I forget yeah. the stuff that I talk about on the podcast <laughs> and then the stuff I talk about on the show and it all sort of blends together. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we did talk about it and it's bizarre. I guess it's opening up um, sometime next year. Yes, yes. Well, I'm sure you and Tom will make the long drive. We will not. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, You know who makes every one of our shows possible? Sue! Jacob and Ronnie. Absolutely. And if you are involved, no matter where you are in Southern California, even all the way up to Vegas, he was handling a case in uh, in Vegas this last week when I talked to him. Uh, if you're involved in a, any kind of accident, car accident, motorcycle accident, as a pedestrian, as a, as, as a biker, uh, you want somebody that has been doing this for 25 years and you want somebody who's going to get you what you deserve, the maximum compensation that you deserve. And here's what makes Jacob different. You know, a lot of times you get a big settlement check out of an insurance company right away or Jacob negotiates you a big number uh, and you're happy with that. If you have to go all the way to a courtroom, Jacob is a trial attorney. A lot of the guys you see on TV, you hear on the radio, all that stuff, they're not trial attorneys. They can't take you to a courtroom if you need to go. Jacob is that guy. That's how good he is. Um, this guy is a friend of mine. He's my attorney. Uh, if you're involved in an accident, he should be your attorney. Remember the number. Put it in your phone. 844-24-JACOB. That's 844-24-JACOB. 844-24-JACOB. Well, remember the catchy jingle. Accident or injury. Call Jacob and Ronnie. Call, Call Jacob. Jacob. Oh, pretty good. Yeah, was that all right? It wasn't as good as uh, the last time. Yeah, no. But no. but better than many other times. It's like you know, it's like our golf games. Sometimes well, you it's know safe, what? Sometimes it's not. But you know, like because you were telling me that you do the Angelina Jolie. Jolie, right? Yeah, that's so my tempo. I think, phrase. So I think we should have an Angelina Jolie. 
a for tempo. the Jacob Ramrani when we come in together. Dangle. Okay, I think that's a good idea. Do okay. we actually want to say Angelina Jolie? No, I think we say it to ourselves. To ourselves, yeah. And then, because you don't say it out loud when you're hitting balls, do you? Sometimes I do. Do you really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, I don't ever actually say it out loud. <laughs> By the way, it works. That'll turn heads. It works with other other names too. Like for example, sometimes I use Dua Lipa. Huh. Do you know Dua Lipa? No, who, what, who, what is that? Oh, hot new act. Hot new act. Oh, okay. Trying to stay contemporary soon. What kind of music is Deck it? Deck the charts. It's sort of like Euro dance music. Oh, well then, that's so not my music. It's, not, it's top 40. It's, it's Euro dance music, but I mean, it's really fun. Okay. You should check out some Dua Lipa. When I first learned how to play golf, um, an instructor told me I should go say, tick, tock. Well, that doesn't timing. give, th- th- does that give you any timing? Yeah. Tick, talk. Okay. Yeah. That's good. That's good. I like Angelina Jolie better. I've been but. doing the Angelina Jolie. Oh, yeah. The Angelina Jolie works like crazy. Hey, Sue, great seeing you. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, if you are listening right now on Spotify or on iTunes, please hit the subscribe button. That means a lot to us. Leave a rating, leave a review. Uh, we're really excited about the show. Uh, we are, Sue, I think this will be, when all is said and done, our 135th episode of the Culture Pop Podcast. That's very impressive. And they said it wouldn't last. And they said it wouldn't last. Yeah, that's uh, great. We will, uh, great seeing you, Sue, and we will see everybody next time on the Culture Pop Podcast.